Welcome to the podcast that will bring the pages of Elephants in Tea magazine to life. Never heard of us? We're the only magazine written for and by the adolescent and young adult cancer community. We like to call everyone in our community our herd. So, welcome to the herd. Although this club is not one that you're glad you joined, knowing you're not alone in what you're going through and hearing from people who get it can really help. With this podcast, you can bring your herd with you on the go. Welcome to AYA Cancer Unfiltered, spilling the tea with our herd. I am here with Lauren Patterson. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Lisa. I'm so glad that you're here to chat with us, not only about your amazing letter that is in the Dear Cancer issue of our upcoming magazine, but about your cancer experience. And we're going to kind of dive into both of those things, but thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Thank you. Absolutely. So yeah, I would love for you to start off by sharing a little bit about your diagnosis and, and treatment, just so our listeners can get to know you a little bit before we talk about other things. Sounds good. So I was diagnosed at 34 with choroidomelanoma, an ocular cancer. Ocular melanomas can present themselves in three layers of the eye. Mine's in the choroid layer. Um, There's only about 200 people diagnosed in Canada annually. It represents one of the 55 types of melanoma and isn't related to cutaneous melanoma. There are few known determinants apart from being Caucasian, female, and having fair features, all of which I've got. Um, My diagnosis was February 14th, 2022, so Valentine's Day. This was after a handful of rapid fire referrals and medical appointments after I'd gone to put on my eye makeup and realized I couldn't see out of the upper quadrant of my left eye. Um, About five weeks post-diagnosis, I underwent brachytherapy. For those less familiar with brachytherapy, it's a surgically implanted radioactive disc. The 24-karat gold disc is matched to the tumor's size. And then these radioactive seeds are placed matching the tumor's depth. The intent is for precise radiation um, of the tumor plus an additional two millimeters to ensure all cancerous cells are eradicated. I underwent two surgeries in the span of a week, one where the disc was implanted and sewn to the back of my eye. And at that time, they did a biopsy for staging um, and the second where it was removed. Um, My biopsy was sent through Castle Biosciences, a leader in melanoma diagnostics. Unlike some cancers that are staged one through four, ocular melanomas are classed 1A, 1B, and 2. There's an opportunity also to look at genetic profile results, which you see as prime negative or positive. Um, My results came back class 1A, prime positive. So the lowest class, but I have a genetically higher chance for metastatic spread. So we'll see. Um, After about three months of brachytherapy, I began immunotherapy. Um, The drug is also targeted, sorry, pardon me, About three months after brachytherapy, I began immunotherapy. The drug is also targeted to the eye. So through ocular injections, there's a lot of clockwork orange vibes in my life. Uh, I get these injections every three months for the known future. So my vision's nearly gone in my left eye. Um, It's truly amazing how your eyes compensate. I don't often notice the limited vision loss unless I'm really tired or driving at night. So onward we go. Wow. I mean, just the vision. So, so you get the injection right into your eye. You betcha. I have like chills going down. (laughs) There's a lot of Ativan. I'm sure. 
my gosh. I mean, I think if we could go back a little bit and talk about the rarity of this cancer, I think you mentioned it in your letter as well that, you know, you don't often think of cancer of the eye and let alone it being a melanoma. I mean, I, I had no idea that that was even a thing. So your your first symptom or when you noticed something was wrong, it was vision related, correct? It was vision related. Yeah. Oftentimes I understand people don't actually um, have vision changes. It's generally when they go to the optometrist, the optometrist will flag that, that there's something there. But in my case, because the tumor is wrapped around the optic nerve, I, uh, vision loss is what I noticed. Oh, oh my goodness. And then the follow-up. So you said that you're still on, um, you go for those injections. Is that kind of your follow-up every few months as of right now? You betcha. You betcha. That's my primary follow-up. So I do see a secondary oncologist too. I did have a metastatic scare. Um, so I, I've got two oncological teams supporting me right now, but um, that's my primary, my primary follow-up. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. Um, so as you know, the theme of the June magazine is Dear Cancer. So it is filled with letters that um, individuals have written to cancer. Have your feelings towards cancer changed throughout your experience or would you say you've kind of always had one like underlying emotion that's a good question so I have generalized anxiety disorder which I was diagnosed with in my mid-20s and my ability to catastrophize is unparalleled I have a hard time I've had a hard time feeling hope again feeling optimism it feels like I'm waiting for the proverbial shoe to drop my feelings towards cancer have evolved from diagnosis to now. And I would say my feelings are now less about me, though the entire experience is just surreal. My feelings towards cancer now take my family and then my cancer family, friends, old and new, who are on this journey um, into consideration. My One of my dear girlfriends and sorority sisters was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer a couple of months after I received my diagnosis. We're the same age, same family stage. And I've been friends since our late teens. Um, walking this journey with her has been special, question mark. I don't know if we'd actually call it special, but um, I, I'm grateful to have someone so close and dear that it just support me as I support her. I've also befriended people in the AYA cancer community and parents supporting children with pediatric cancers. Um, my feelings have ranged from fear and anxiety to anger and incomprehension. And sometimes those emotions are a sympathetic response. Their cancer anxiety becomes my own and vice versa while we celebrate one another's wins, big or small, and cry together over scanxiety or those dreaded black screens you see on social. Before cancer, this was a world I knew nothing about and, you know, kind of wish I still didn't, but I'm grateful for a special community like this. My feelings have evolved, but I think to something greater. Yeah, I relate to to what you're saying there. I think, you know, one of the major reasons why at Elephants and Tea we do what we do is to make sure that people know that they're not alone in what they're going through, that there is a community out there, um, unfortunately, but fortunately, kind of like what you said, you know, um, and like you said, to have a close friend who um, was walking through, even if it's a different cancer, um, walking through that kind of cancer experience at a young age with a young family, there, there's power in that to, to be able to discuss feelings, emotions, fears, um, with that individual. So I, I definitely agree with everything that you said just there. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. As well as the, like, 
roller coaster of emotions, right? Like you're angry at, you're, you're, you're confused. Why me? You go through all those kind of phases. Mm-hmm. Um, but something that stood out to me about your letter, which we are going to talk about in a little bit, is that you do kind of focus a little bit more on what you find important now and what you're putting your focus on and what you're putting your efforts efforts into. Um, and that can be a really beautiful lesson to learn in a really difficult way. <laughs> um, so yeah, we'll talk more about that, but thank you for sharing that for sure. So if you could choose one word or one emotion of how you feel towards cancer right now in this moment, what would that word be? I think that word would be unknown living with and in the unknown. It's a heavy place to live. And perhaps one day the unknown will become the known, but for now we sit and in the discomfort, fear and hope for the very worst, or sorry, hope for the very best while bracing for that proverbial shoe to drop, praying that we reach that magical five-year mark where our diagnosis supposedly stabilizes and we can pick up those pieces and go forward. Yeah, totally. So is that true for your cancer that five years is kind of like the timeline where they say that if it if it were to either reoccur or become metastatic those five years are kind of the the window where it would most likely happen exactly there's I mean there's exceptions to the rule but that's um that's sort of the time frame we're we're working with right now yeah that's the same for mine as well I actually like your friend um, and four years out from a triple negative breast cancer diagnosis. And that five-year window is true for triple negative breast cancer specifically. Um, mm-hmm. but I know it varies for that, that window varies for all different types of cancers. So, um, yeah, thanks for, for sharing that. Um, if you could kind of go back and think about what you would tell your newly diagnosed self, what, what do you think you would say to that Lauren? I think I would say that this will be the most trying experience of your life and you don't have control of it. And that's okay. You're going to have to be okay with that. Um, Trust that you'll get the medical advice and care that you need. You'll also learn to advocate for yourself. Your body is amazing. And so is science. Uh, Your relationships will evolve, some for the better, and other friendships are going to end, but you'll make new friends and meet a wonderful cancer community. And some of those friends might die and that sucks. That's really hard. All of this is going to be hard, but you will laugh again and find hope in small things along the way and start to figure out what's most important to you. You still don't know if you're going to be okay, but you'll manage, learn to ask for help, and you'll have family, friends, and acquaintances to lean on along the way. I think that's all very beautifully put and very true. I would love to kind of jump into your letter now. Uh, What I did is I pulled some lines that when I was reading it really kind of stuck out to me. Um, So I'd love to ask you some questions about those, if that's okay with you. For sure. The first first line that really caught my eye was, the physician mechanically went through the motions of communicating a completely devastating and life-changing event. That line really resonated with me because... I just kept having this thought, these healthcare providers, it's, they just woke up and came to work, you know, like this is their job. They do this day in and day out. Meanwhile, for me, on the other side of the news that they're sharing, my world is like crumbling with what they're saying. And it's such a 
crazy thing to think about like that. So I'm, I'm wondering if you could share a little bit what specifically about that moment for you stands out in your experience. Oh, well said, Lisa. <laughs> um, moments before I was diagnosed, I was sitting in that stark clinical room and there were CTs in my eyeballs on the computer screen from the CT scan I'd had maybe 25 minutes prior. Um, and my husband and I sat there and there was one eyeball CT of my right eye, which looked completely normal. And my left eyeball had this mass that occupied a concerning amount of real estate. <laughs> Normally you look at CTs and you're like, oh, what are they looking at? No, in this case, I was like, what is that? And that is not good. <laughs> Most people don't have that. Um, both my optometrist who I'd seen on the Saturday and an ophthalmological fellow I'd seen at the hospital eye clinic on the Sunday had written choroidal melanoma question mark. And sitting and staring at that for 10 or so minutes was unsettling, to say the least. And then to have a diagnosis shortly thereafter, so factually and unemotionally communicated, was just clinical, impersonal. I don't know if it was because the ophthalmologist was only a few years older than me, um, that he had a hard time sharing that diagnosis. As I'd shared earlier, the average age of diagnosis is in your early 60s. So it was quite surprising to see someone um, in their in their 30s with this diagnosis. But I also kind of felt dismissed, or I don't think infantilized is the right word, but um, talked down to a bit. Uh, the ophthalmologist was concurrently sharing that he was going to send me to an oncologist specializing in lumps and bumps. Even telling me after I had cancer, I felt I was left to read between the lines and wonder what the hell it means. Um, this was on Valentine's Day. And then a week or so later, I met my ocular oncologist. There's only three in Canada who perform brachytherapy. And those feelings of coldness and the clinical the clinical feelings were even stronger when I met him. There were no reassurances whether things would be okay. And I mean, he doesn't want to get sued. I get it. Um, but instead, it was just a very factual and unemotional reciting of what was about to happen. You have choroidal melanoma. You're going for brachytherapy radiation. I need to consult with medical physics due to the precarious placement of the tumor. Assume we're moving forward with that unless you hear otherwise. Bye. Um, I, I do need to say, though, that our relationship or my relationship with the ocular oncologist has evolved since that first visit. He's warmed significantly and is probably one of my strongest champions. Oh, it's, that's so good to hear. Yeah, it's turned out for the better, but it was a rocky start. Yeah. I mean, that's so hard. And and as you were just sharing that, I was thinking that they, you know, I'm trying to give medical professionals the benefit of the doubt because they're delivering really difficult news like I said, day in and day out. So part of me wonders, maybe they do have to kind of almost turn on this like robotic nature so that they don't get emotional and get attached to what they're actually saying. Um, but again, when you're the one on the other side, when you're on the receiving end, it doesn't feel good. Um, and the sad thing is, I feel like every person in the AYA community most likely has a story of some medical professional that they kind of got that vibe from. And it's it's unfortunate because we're already dealing with such difficult news to be um to feel like it was done in like a cold manner makes it even harder. Um so I don't know. I when I read that I just I remember I was like shaking my head because I related so much to how you must have felt in that moment. Oh thank you. Yeah. Um the next part that got me and I'm going to try not to get emotional was when you were talking about your 
your kids. Um, specifically when you said she giggled and marveled at the treat bags a few classmates had made. I wondered if I would live long enough to help her make special treats for her classmates next year. So you navigated this diagnosis and treatment with little kids. And I think that there is a whole nother level of difficulty when it comes to that. Um, because not only are you going through your own emotions about it for yourself, but like you said earlier, you're thinking of these little people that you created and and worrying about what the future looks like for them and will they have a mom? And, you know, I vividly remember having all of these same thoughts because I also had two young kids when I was diagnosed. Um, and specifically with your example, Mine came to me when I was driving randomly a few weeks after my diagnosis and I saw some middle schoolers walking home from school. And for some reason that got me and I started bawling because my kids were so young. They were three, three and a half and one and a half. I think I had this thought because the thought of them in middle school was so far away I had that same thought, like, am I even going to get to see them do this? Are they going to get to do this with me around? Um, so I'm wondering if you would kind of talk a little bit about what it was like going through this with little kids, how you navigated that, and how did you communicate? Because especially your daughter, she was kind of at an age where, or I should say your older child, I'm not sure what what your younger child um, is, but- Daughter, you're right. <laughs> oh, perfect. Um how you communicated that, what you were going through, because they're old enough to kind of get it, especially when you're receiving treatment. And yeah, so if you could just talk a little bit about that, I think that would be really um, insightful. Oh, Lisa, your story gets me. <laughs> um, so my son, Christopher, was 14 months when I was diagnosed. He couldn't comprehend. He still can't comprehend. He bites me to communicate. Um, classic toddler stuff. But my daughter, Maddie, as you shared, um, she was five at the time. She's now seven. She could. And I did my utmost to be honest and factual with Madeline while still being mindful of her age. I told her there was a tumor that was hurting me in my eye and I was going to get help from doctors and scientists to get better. It would mean I'd need to live away for a bit as I underwent radiation. I moved in with my parents at that point um, and I'd miss her sixth birthday. And that was a really big deal to her. For Tristan, my husband, and me ensuring that there was a community to support the kids was integral. That was non-negotiable. I can figure out the chaos that is my own diagnosis, but the kids are my priority. They have to be taken care of. We let the kids daycare. Um, Madeline's teacher and gymnastics coaches know of the diagnosis too. We also enlisted a child psychologist who specializes in critical illness to help. And that made a really big difference. Um, it was a place Maddie could safely and constructively process her emotions. I know that's not available to everyone. It can be cost prohibitive, but I'm very lucky that that was a service that was covered for us. Um, she has a mean, a mean child in her class who is helpfully shared with her, or told her that I'm going to die and she'll be alone. Obviously not true and certainly not useful. Um, Maddie still clings to this and those words obviously cut her deep and they affected her. She still asks from time to time if I'm going to die. And in fact, she did yesterday. But for now, I tell her that I have the care I need to help me get better. 
And that's all I can promise her. I don't want to make the false promises either, but, um, similarly, I, I pray to be there. <laughs> we'll see her start junior high, high school, get married, have her own kids if she chooses. And yeah, it's, it's hard to look ahead though. It really is. And it's that fine line of communicating with them where you want to be upfront and factual and use words that they're most likely going to hear you saying anyway. Um, and I think it helps them kind of learn and be able to verbalize it. Um, but you, like you said, you have to kind of think about their age and um, unfortunately they are so impressionable. So that, that friend who made that comment, it doesn't surprise me that that's sick that stuck with her because that was a very scary thing that was said um, about her mom. So of course she's going to remember that. And that's, it's hard when you don't have control over that, over the outside things that, that happen. But um, it sounds like you have a beautiful relationship with her and that um, you communicate everything that you need to. And like you said, making sure that their life continues and, nothing is kind of like offbeat for them. I think that was something that I actually really found um, almost, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it gave me something to focus on that wasn't cancer related. Yes, it was difficult to like have to still do all the logistical life things, but it gave me a little sense of normalcy. I'm wondering if you kind of felt that during your treatment and everything. Normalcy and control, you bet, as close as close to normal as we can get. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned that it's really hard to look ahead and think about the future, which I also still have a really hard time with. So there's a line in your letter that said, there were dark clouds on a future that was so carefully planned. The path to our curated and ambitious life goals was now unknown. This this really got me too, because I... I've always been such a planner and um, it was, was really hard, like you said, to be so out of control with my own diagnosis. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to that and if you feel the same way and if you find that it's difficult to kind of um, plan ahead, even a month or two down the road. Truly. Oh, I do feel this. And I, when I was diagnosed, I was... Um working full-time in the same position I'm in now and was in grad school. I was midway through the semester. I'd finished my course uh, post-diagnosis, but I, I paused on my grad studies. And now, despite having re-enrolled, I still grapple with whether I should complete it. Education is never a bad investment. I work in post-secondary, but to spend the tens of thousands on tuition feels so hard to justify given the unknown. Um, at this moment, I feel I live scan to scan, praying that I reach that magical five-year mark. And in the gray and unknown, I'm scared to plan more than six months ahead. That's the length of time between my scans. Um, but I also do want to acknowledge my privilege. I live in Alberta, Canada. I have access to good universal health care. It is not without its issues, don't get me wrong, but I don't need to argue with insurance companies over treatment and worry about a crippling debt load and cancer, and a family. I get the care I need, have good employer benefits, can take the time I need from work with supportive management, and my family, my parents, brother, and in-laws are close by to support me, Tristan, and the kids. Very few people have what I have, and I acknowledge that. It doesn't make it good or easier to look further than each scan, but it truly lessens that burden. 
I guess it's like the luckiest of the unlucky. Is that a thing? I don't know. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. The the luckiest of the unlucky. Um, yeah, we could we could probably spend a whole hour talking about the differences between Canada and the United States and healthcare and insurance and all of that, but we're not going to get into that. But I really. I appreciate your position on that, your point of view, um, and you're acknowledging that, again, you have access to these things that are making it easier, not easy, but easier. Um, so I appreciate you for for sharing that, and I'm sure our listeners will, will as well. Thank you. No, it's, <laughs> it's something. That difference between our countries is, is real when it comes to healthcare. Holy. Uh-huh. Oh, Yeah. Um, you had another line that said, I reflect longingly for a time when cancer and mortality didn't consume my thoughts for a time when I didn't understand the clinical words that are now standard in my vocabulary. And as young adults, we really are forever changed by a cancer diagnosis. I think you, you almost alluded to this a few minutes ago, but I kind of went through a whole identity shift. And I think you, you were speaking to it when you were talking about your going back for, um, your continued education. Like, is this really the right thing to be doing now? I think that idea of questioning, um, is very common among the AYA population when it comes to cancer. Um, so would you agree that you're different now than before your diagnosis and kind of in which ways have you changed? For sure. I do believe that I'm different now than I was pre-diagnosis. And I believe that our perspective differs from those who haven't personally faced a life-altering diagnosis or had someone very close to them face a a life-altering diagnosis. Um, I think I'd shared briefly earlier, I had a PET CT done upon the removal of my brachy placard in my eye and the PET CT came back with suspected mets to my lungs ocular melanomas metastasized to your liver or lungs. Unlike other cancers where you can be cured, um, they're deemed cured after METs. Uh, with ocular melanomas, it's terminal and it's usually quite fast. There are only a couple of clinical trials available and most of those are in the United States. Um, I am extremely fortunate that after several tests and additional doctor's visits, it was determined to be a false positive. Um, those weeks were hell. They were gut-wrenching. And apart from requiring a heck of a lot of therapy to process it, it forced me to pause and reflect on how I show up. I have spent my entire life being a people pleaser. And now I don't, I can't. If I disagree, I say so respectfully. And not everyone likes that. I've decided that life is too fragile and unpredictable to be anything but your authentic self. And if I hadn't been diagnosed, I'm curious how long it would have taken me to appreciate that. Again, very well said, Lauren. Um, I think that a lot of people will relate to what you just said. And I'm wondering, it, it. I'm getting the sense that you are kind of thankful for this new outlook. I'm wondering if you could just speak to that a little bit. And also, I mentioned this earlier, It's it's a shame that many of us kind of find this new outlook and new identity by going through the difficulties that we've gone through with cancer. How can we get people who don't, are not in this community or don't face their own mortality at a young age to see all the beauty that there is 
I don't know. I know that's a really deep question and maybe one we cannot answer here, but I'm just, I've had that thought many times. I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Truly. Um, I mean, in some ways I'm thankful, grateful for this new outlook. I mean, I think most of us wish we probably hadn't been diagnosed in the first place, but to learn at a relatively young age about how to reprioritize things, your life, your goals, your finances, and more is well, it's objectively helpful in many ways. Um, I think sort of that running joke is uh, mortality is discussed as often as the weather in the AYA community. And though we mourn and grieve our old lives, we have a shared understanding that nothing's guaranteed. Time isn't guaranteed. And that's a unique perspective, morbid too, perhaps. Um, we learn through our own cancer experience what's helpful and how we want people to show up for us or how we wish they'd show up for us. For me, being mindful, respectful, and open to honest conversation has been the way that I have just begun to help some of those around me understand. Um, in my job, I do a lot of listening and asking probing questions similar to what you're doing right now. Um, and not everyone's at a place where they feel comfortable talking about cancer or, or death. It's a difficult and triggering topic. And sometimes we have to meet those outside of the non-cancer community where they're at. I reflect back to myself 18 months ago. I didn't understand. I'd be a bumbling mess if my girlfriend Kristen had been diagnosed um, before me. I wouldn't wouldn't be able to comfort her in any sort of a meaningful way. Or for me, I'd overthink how I'd show up for them, not appreciating that it's as simple as doing something, bringing dinner, watching the kids, and acknowledging that the person they were has evolved through this chaos that is life with and you know optimally after cancer being there sitting with them through the crop and helping them as they refocus their life and rearrange the pieces is special and, and really hard to understand yeah I mean I think that like you said unfortunately I think that a lot of it comes when you face it yourself and you kind of are learn firsthand um, like you, I was very privileged and prior to my own diagnosis, I didn't have um, a connection to the cancer community. I hadn't really had any major losses due to cancer in my family or friends. So it it wasn't until my own diagnosis where all of that kind of hit me. And I think that that has kind of almost been part of my driving factor in sharing my experience and my story is um, kind of spreading that awareness and trying to get people to understand that it's not the little things in life that, oh no, sorry, it is the little things in life that mean the most, um, <clears throat> that things that people complain about on a day-to-day -day basis are, tend to be more trivial. And yes, of course, I mean, we have, we have little kids. There are still days that like, I'm getting that fourth sip of water at bedtime from a 30 minute go around of trying to get them to go to bed where I get frustrated, but the parenting out the window. Yep. Right. <laughs> but then I oftentimes am able to take a deep breath and reflect and say, but I'm here to do it right now. <laughs> so as frustrating as moments like that are, I am able to this moment. Um, yeah. So I, again, I, I just relate to essentially everything that you wrote about and said, <laughs> I think a lot of our listeners will too, to be honest. Um, do you mind sharing a little bit about how it felt to write a letter to cancer? You bet. So I think at this stage of my journey, cancer is still very much on the brain. 
It doesn't matter what I'm doing. It lurks in the background. And to write this letter felt natural. When the call for stories was posted on Instagram, um, it was close to my first cancerversary. And I'd been reflecting on the first year quite often, sort of pondering some of the things we're talking about today. I was laying in bed with my laptop propped up on my legs. And I think it took me less than 20 minutes to write the story as the words were sort of already on my fingertips. What I remember the most is Tristan telling me to stop pounding the keyboard because he was trying to sleep. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, so if is writing something that you do often or was this kind of a new exercise for you? This was a new and uncomfortable exercise. Wow. Oh, I'm like blown away by that because your writing is so beautiful. Thank you. I I actually really loved how you repeated that line on Valentine's Day. I found that very powerful um, throughout your letter. Um, what advice? So since this was your new time, do you have any advice to anyone out there who maybe hasn't tried writing as kind of a healing tool, um, anything that kind of helped you or how you feel now that you've done it? Do you think you'll continue? I'm just curious. <laughs> I think everyone's approach to processing their diagnosis is different and uniquely theirs. Um, but if journaling or writing isn't something you've tried, perhaps consider it, even if it's just for you. Um, one of my colleagues is an AYA cancer survivor, and she and I met up as I was recovering from my surgeries. Um, and it was her who encouraged me to try writing, writing for me or to share. Um, I'm a very private person. I don't post much on social media. I'm not one to publicly share the hard times, but I wrote a short Instagram post celebrating Tristan on our 12th wedding anniversary and the selfless care that he's provided and how lucky I am. Then in October around um, World Site Day, I gave a talk actually to my sorority sisters as my philanthropy site or our philanthropy site based. Um, and this was wildly uncharacteristic of me sharing personal and vulnerable details with those I know and many I don't. Um, but I figured if I could successfully educate a small number of people, encouraging them to get a dilated eye exam, perhaps that could make a difference. Um, and since then, I've actually shared my story with my local professional association through a lens of how it's impacted my work. Um, you can start small and you can push yourself and your comfort. And my rationale is that with nothing being guaranteed, you might as well shoot your shot and take that first step. Taking that first step is really the scariest. And I do plan to continue to write and share my story when the opportunity presents itself or forging opportunity too. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I'm very happy to hear that. And I think that was great advice. Um, if anyone's listening here and maybe they happen to have the same diagnosis or a similar diagnosis, or they just want to connect with you, what is the best way for people to connect with you? Probably through Instagram. If you reach out to LML Patterson. Awesome. I'm going to make sure I put that, um, put your account in the show notes so people can find you if they'd like to. Thank this you. has been lovely. I really, really appreciate your time and your insight and your being vulnerable and sharing all of these responses and your amazing letter that you wrote to cancer. So thank you so much. Um, I really, truly appreciate it. Thank you, Lisa. I'm so happy I could be here with you today. Are you a patient or caregiver with something to say? Make your voice heard by participating in paid surveys, interviews, and online communities. Start talking to the right people. It's free. Rare Patient Voice accepts rare and non-rare diagnoses. 
In celebration of their 10th anniversary, their studies now pay at a rate of $120 an hour. Sign up today at rarepatientvoice.com slash E&T. That's rarepatientvoice.com slash E-A-N-D-T. Thanks for listening. We hope you feel a little less alone in what you're going through. Be sure to tune in next time, but until then, visit www.elephantsandtea.com for more relatable content.